You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm Weston Williams, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Matthew Cummings. All right, this week, live from the Boston Early Music Festival, Oliver goes inside the huddle with Jonathan Woody. The bass baritone and composer just wrapped up performances at the festival's centerpiece opera, Circe, as one of only two black artists in the cast of dozens. But he's not calling for the cancellation of Baroque music altogether, like some people we know. Plus, in the two-minute drill, the plot of Die Frau Neschatten explained at last, despite my best efforts. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You can click follow on Apple Podcasts, hit that plus sign, send us a voice memo, or email us your hot take at operaboxscore at gmail.com. You'll get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Oliver, I want you to know something very important. Uh, as you know, I am on TikTok, and um, I started getting tennis TikToks this week. And my only explanation is that the algorithm has figured out that you and I know each other. <laughs> it's listening to him talk about tennis every week. And it thinks that it's you. Um, so I was at the Boston Early Music Festival until yesterday. And this was the last week was the, you know, the second week of Roland Garros of the French Open. And I had to try to not, you know, look at results uh, because I, I had like pre-recorded I had set my DVR to like record some matches but you can't avoid it like every time you open as as you just mentioned every time you open up like Instagram for example you see results and um, I can't not look at my thirst traps on Instagram <laughs> so I found out that my dear Carlos Alcaraz my new favorite uh, cramped up in the semifinal against Novak Djokovic which cleared the path for him to take his 23rd Grand Slam title, which puts him ahead of Rafael Nadal by one and ties him with Serena Williams as the most Grand Slams in the open era. Oh, wow. The grandest slammiest winner. (laughs) Yes. And there's a chance that he can beat both of these records. uh, The chance he can beat Serena Williams' record and improve upon it if people like Carlos Alcaraz don't cramp up in the semifinals. <laughs> so mad at you, Carlitos. But um, yeah, congratulations. No way. <laughs> Matt Cummings, who's cramping up in your world? I just can't believe that they already wrote an opera about Cersei Lannister. <laughs> <laughs> Hundreds of years before time. the show even happened. I think there is. Isn't there? Am I making this up? Isn't there an opera based on Game of Thrones already? Isn't that lord of the rings or no no i think it's game of thrones i could be completely wrong listeners please email us at operaboxscore at gmail.com for that beer coaster and to possibly correct me you you too can feel like oliver camacho by correcting me (laughs) at operaboxscore at gmail.com let's talk some opera huddle up let's go inside the huddle so jonathan woody is a bass baritone whom i recognize from the early music circuit. Uh, He sings with Trinity Wall Street. Uh, He sings with Boston Early Music Festival and um, at the Staunton Music Festival. And he's also a composer. He's been commissioned by a number of organizations like the Handel and Haydn Society, 
um, and some others, which I can't think of right now. And I knew I just seeing him in the social media uh, circles that I'm in, I realized that he is a very, um, you know, interesting artist who does center his identity and is getting jobs <laughs> despite that uh, because he's actually a very good singer. So we'll begin by listening to something that's just for you, Weston. Thank you. I'm uh, so this excited. Is, these are the opening bars of Du Yun's Angel's Bone. And the very first voice you will hear is that of Jonathan Woody. just the opening notes of Du Yun's Angel's Bone. And that first voice you heard was that of my guest today, bass baritone Jonathan Woody. Welcome. Hi. <laughs> he waved, everybody, if you didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast. So um, there are many different uh, topics we could talk about when we're talking about you as a singer and also as a composer and as sort of a classical music uh, agitator slash advocate. But we're going to begin with uh, your work in contemporary music. It seems like many singers who have your specific skill set, uh, you either go the early music route or you go the new music route or you go the ensemble singing route and you decided to go with all of them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you worked on Angel's Bone. You're on the commercial recording. You were also in Ellen Reed's Prism. Was that at Prototype or was that the post-Prototype? Also part of Prototype. And then we went on tour with it to, um, to LA Opera, to the uh, Red Cat down there in LA Opera. I have never been to Prototype Festival. Uh, is it anything like the Boston Early Music Festival? <laughs> Are it's, there a lot of recorders being played in hotel rooms? <laughs> it's kind of like flipping the Boston Early Music Festival upside down, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, uh, Prototype is a very, very cool festival that they do in New York in January. Um, and it features all kinds of new operatic works. Uh, and there's usually some larger ones and some smaller ones. And yeah, being able to be part of several festivals and be part of a few different Pulitzer Prize winning works uh, was really very cool um, and very kind of informative to me of what the world of contemporary opera is like nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, you were also in Breaking the Waves mm -hmm. in, the, in the New York premiere? Or? In the New York premiere, that's okay. right. Uh, and, you know, these works, all three of the works you just mentioned, uh, Prism, Angel's Bone, and Breaking the Waves, uh, relate to very contemporary issues uh, and, and issues in general about, um, often about gender and about power and about, you know, where those things clash and where we as a society don't, you know, we don't look in the cracks, you know, of what sort of these kinds of folks are going through. And, and I think that's that takes um, that's a, a snapshot of what contemporary opera, I think, in the 2010s and 2020s is like. Yeah, it's interesting that I feel like the opera world right now is all deciding, you know, especially after the pandemic and the social unrest of 2020, that we need to be more inclusive. Um, great, you know, and I think one way is to have new works that uh, tell new stories. 
but there's also this other avenue of um you know especially in early music we see like who are our people <laughs> like and then all of a sudden joseph Ballone is like the most important composer of the year and um you know we're finding all these marginalized or disenfranchised female composers mm-hmm. who wrote um you know uh, mostly choral music you know and uh yeah so and you're involved in all of that it seems yeah i mean you know in- increasingly more and more and actually it's funny you mentioned Bologna. um well, first of all, you probably know that there's a movie coming out called Chevalier. Yeah. It's already out, I it's think. It's out. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and it looks very good. I should probably go see it. I didn't realize it was already out. Yeah, it's already gone to streaming. I'm okay. sure it's already out of the theater. So, um, But yeah, I mean, like you said, he's having this moment right now. And it's interesting because I came across his music um, almost 15 years ago uh, uh, when I was working with Tafel Music still as a student. They have a training program. And they had a CD called The Black Mozart. Uh, in French, I think it was, oh, Le Mozart Noir. <laughs> and, and it's interesting because at that time, you know, that was kind of seen as let's, let's celebrate that there's this figure that we think of as a black Mozart. And of course, times have changed since 2009 to today, where it's like, if anything, Mozart is the white Chevalier, <laughs> right? So... <laughs> So, or maybe let's like not use these kinds of terms. Yeah, it's comparisons. Like, yeah, you know? like, there has to be a binary. It's like mm-hmm. there's the white one and the black one. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, Chevalier's life was so interesting. Uh, aside from being like not only a famous composer and also he founded an orchestra in France, which still exists to this day. He also was a championship fencer and was actually sort of the son of both like nobility and an enslaved person. And it... To me, that life story is like such a big part of why I think classical music is interesting and why it matters, because it's not just the story of like one genius sitting in a room and writing perfect works of music. It's the story of people's actual lives and how they fit together. And the music is kind of an expression of all that. I did not prepare you for this topic, but I think you might have something to say about it. Um, there is a very famous uh, classical music agitator out there. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he has a podcast. And uh, he used to work for uh, classical radio in, I want to say, Minnesota. Garrett McQueen. Right. Uh, I don't want to, because he's been a guest. And like I, I actually, uh, I think his work is very important. But sometimes he gets under my skin because he just wants to burn it all down. Sure. And he wants to cancel Handel, you know. And I would assume that Handel is a big part of your career. <laughs> yeah. Actually, when he made that tweet saying he wanted to cancel Handel, I tweeted at him. I don't know if you saw that. Um, and we kind of had a little exchange yeah. uh, because, you know, the research has shown lately that Handel um, created a lot of the operas he created and funded his opera company through profits from the slave trade. Mm-hmm. Um, Handel himself wasn't a slave owner, but he did use the wealth that the slave trade was creating to create his work. And, you know, that's obviously problematic. But I think for me, the answer is not, okay, we can never do handle again. The answer is, when we do handle, let's talk about that. And let's make sure everybody knows about that. And, for example... Yeah, don't erase the history. Don't erase the history. Contextualize the history. For example, Handel and Haydn Society, just this past weekend here in Boston, uh, did a program called Crossing the Deep, which took Handel's music, 
put it next to the music of enslaved people that was being written at the same time and had a discussion about how those things related to each other. And, and it was led by, you know, someone you've probably had in the podcast before, uh, Reggie Mobley um, and Anthony Tresick King, who's another great conductor. And, you know, the, their approach to this music, both being black men who descended from, you know, enslaved people in North America, uh, gives it not just, um, you know, sort of validity, but it, it, I think it really asks the audiences to say, like, what do we think about this? Is this okay? And for me, it's the question. It's not let's cancel. It's let's ask questions. Hmm. Well, you did bring up Handel and you did bring up Boston. So we can now talk about why we get to be in the same room together is that you are in the middle of a production of a French Baroque opera, Desmarais Circe, and your character is sort of a genderless sorcerer god type of person who like uh, tells the white people that they're okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I can sum it up a little differently. You know, so it's 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 an ancient Greek myth, and it's and Circe is the queen on an island, and she has the Greek soldiers who show up and. From the Trojan War, yeah. yeah. Odysseus, and she falls in love with him and then, you know, turns his men into pigs and then tries to convince him to stay on the island with her forever. And that's where I... And she uses magic to do it. She uses magic to do it. It's like Alcina moment, yeah. And and that's where I appear because I sort of represent the god of love, Cupid, and I come on and say, hey, people, why don't you all stay together forever on this beautiful island? You know, you don't have to go back to your home country, blah, 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 blah. Um, and of course, it ends not so happily. And you can check out Bimp's website if you want to learn more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is interesting that that is the kind of role I often play in um, a Baroque work. Because these works tend to be, they tend to tell similar sorts of stories. Stories that are actually, from their point of view, looking back on the Greek mythology, which they very much held up as their sort of model of an ideal society, an ideal westernized culture. And then now we in the 21st... There were air quotes there, by the way, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, yeah, air quote. Um, And then we in the 21st century sort of look back on this time, on, on the Baroque time, and we do a similar thing. We sort of think this is high culture and this is something that you have to sit in a fancy concert hall and wear a, to- a-, a bow tie and a tuxedo. And, you know, you have to just, tut, just tut, wearing tut. a bow tie is fine. Nothing else. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and like it is a conflict for me sometimes um, because I'm I love the music. And I, I couldn't tell you why I've I've loved it since I was a kid. Something about it just speaks to me. But. I see the ways in which it's very hard to tell somebody, particularly somebody who, you know, is just going about their day-to-day life in America, that they should care about this. Um, And I guess what I would say is, I don't think I can tell anybody what they should care about. But what I want to do is share my love for the music um, and try to perform it in a way that other people at least see that or at least see that there's something inspirational and joyful. Um, and then maybe they think, oh, maybe I can in- enjoy this as well. Do you feel like you need to be an ambassador to uh, your community? You're black, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. but <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely, I do. Um, and in fact, my entryway into particularly early music was 
more or less because I saw, so I grew up in Washington, D.C., and there are a couple of Baroque ensembles there. And when I was a student, still in college, um, the, one of them was rehearsing in my college uh, auditorium. And I kind of wandered in uh, during their rehearsal, you know, snuck in and, and sat in the audience and was enraptured by this music. And I looked up on the stage and there were two black faces in a sea of white orchestral musicians. And in that moment, I thought, well, they're there. So maybe I can be there. And so for me, it's so important that I be that person now that I have made it into this very sort of gate kept uh, professional. I mean, for, for the U.S. to me, it is the Naples Ultra of early music, this festival and what they do here. I could be wrong, but I, that's my opinion. And I mean, look, Vox Luminous is here. Dulce Memoir is here. All the great, you know, European ensembles have come to this festival to be heard by Americans, you yep. know. Yep, and I, and I think you're right, and I, I've always personally thought of this festival as being that um, zenith of Baroque music in America, and this is my first festival, uh, well, it's, it's the first one since the pandemic, but it's the first one where I've been invited to sort of be in a featured role, and uh, I do see part of my responsibility as being a face that somebody out in the audience, somebody yeah. who might have snuck into our rehearsal and is listening and is getting enraptured can see my face and say, hey, I can come in here too. Um, and there's also a black dancer in the troupe this year mm -hmm. too. So there are actually two black faces on the stage this year. And I mean, <laughs> what does uh, frustrate me a little bit is that, you know, 15 years later, it, there's still only two black faces. That is a little frustrating. Um, and I think part of that is that times really have changed. You know, I think the way we're, thinking about race and talking about race has changed since I was a college student. Um, and I think nowadays there's a lot more questioning of a sort of default European or Eurocentric way of doing things. And for better or for worse, classical music is super European. Um, and it doesn't have to be forever. And maybe that's... Can it's, segue a conflict. Into... it's a conflict for me because I am pretty conservative in my tastes. And I would rather expand the canon by doing more early music or finding more bel canto. And I know that I need to adapt my sensibility to appreciate what's being the, the new music. And I actually really like Champion. I don't know if you saw it, you know, but I thought it was great. I thought Ryan Speter Green was incredible in it and Eric Owens. Um, but I, you know, I like what I like. I like my Mozarts. I like my Handels, you know, and I'm worried that uh, personalities like Garrett McQueen who want to like burn it all down um, are going to, he has a, a big platform and that uh, maybe people who feel disenfranchised by, you know, the standard repertoire will leave it. Um, and then that creates a problem for audiences here at Boston Early Music Festival. And I don't know what's happening this year. I know it's like the first live festival back uh, since 2019, but audiences are down. Yeah, I've noticed that too. Yeah, it's, it's very alarming to me but um we should talk about your work as a composer is that where you were trying to that was me? where i was <laughs> okay, kind of trying to, to, yeah, to go, go. yeah because because i think like you said and i agree with you i like my handle i like my mozart i like my monteverdi and part of what i like about those composers is that i think 
you actually don't need a music degree to feel that music. You really don't. I think you can sit down, listen to it, close your eyes, take an edible, and, <laughs> you know, have a good time. Yeah. You know, and so when I compose, I want the experience to be the same way. I don't want to write music that's so hard to understand that you have to go ask somebody else what the heck is going on. Like, I want it to just groove. I want people to be able to connect to it. Um, and I like to write music that sounds like it could be Handel or it sounds like it could be Baroque music. Um, and in fact, I'm trying to get this term started, American Baroque. You know, we in the early music scene like to talk about the different countries where the composers come from. So there's French Baroque yeah. and there's Italian Baroque and there's English Baroque. Yeah. And I want to create this term called American Baroque, which is what this music might have sounded like if everybody in this country got to participate in it, you know? You know, just a few minutes ago, you were saying um, you don't know why you are so drawn to this style of music, but um, after hearing you sing and, you know, listening to your work and your performances, um, you use rhetoric when you sing. And I think there is, and like people can say that I'm such a fool of myself, but I think there is this thing about people who specialize in early music that they get rhetorical devices and they understand how the audience can receive more information if you lean into the rhetoric. And that also I think happens in contemporary music. It's like, how do we make this more obvious for the audience? You have to find the rhetoric in it, you know? And uh, I think that's just a different mindset than people who just want to sing beautifully, that just want to sing their Brahms songs and just sing super legato and with the most beautiful tone they can muster, which is great. Don't get me wrong. Like, give me Crystal Ludwig singing Brahms, you know, all day. And which I still want to have yeah. as well, but I agree with you 100%. So um, you have composed, uh, you've been commissioned by Trinity Wall Street, uh, the Seattle Song Salon, the Handel and Haydn Society, and Chanticleer. Um, I guess I wanted to talk to you about Trinity a little bit because they've also featured you as a soloist. You're in that Israel and Egypt recording. And I guess you can credit maybe your uh, young compositional life to the uh, disgraced former <laughs> leader of Trinity. Yeah, you know, I, I, I know how to pick them uh, in terms <laughs> of um, mentors, but um, I did uh, meet. Julian Wachner as a student at McGill University. Uh, and then when I graduated with my master's degree there, he hired me to be in the choir at Trinity Wall Street. Um, and that time, during that time, we did a lot of really interesting and varied performances. We did an entire cycle of the Bach cantatas, all 200 of them, uh, over about five years. We also were performing in the chorus of the three contemporary works that you mentioned at the top of the show, um, Angel's Bone, Prism, and Breaking the Waves. Uh, and I would say that my entry into that um, sort of network and that environment of contemporary music definitely was something that happened because of my association with Trinity. Um, I probably wouldn't have had that sort of direct track otherwise. So I have to give Trinity credit uh, for a lot of my development as an artist. Now, you know, I think you have to sort of take everything with a grain of salt. And it's true that working with um, this director, there were 
dark times and there were moments of, you know, behavior that was absolutely not acceptable. And, and I think ultimately, you know, being, you know, let go from that job was probably the right time and place. I also have him being let go from the job, him not being, you. <laughs> him being let go. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Him being let go. I also have recently left the job and I think it's a similar thing of like, I kind of have to spread my wings at this point and, and move on and, and really take, you know, my career track in my own hands and, and, and on my own terms. Um, but I will forever sort of have to express some gratitude for the experiences that I got there. Um, and, and also the community of fellow singers and players that I built over the years there. Uh, which is they're still the closest people in my life. Oh, we can bring it into sports terms now. Oh yeah. Uh, so Trinity <laughs> is one of the most elite church gigs you can get. Essentially, obviously they're doing more than uh, Sunday service music, but uh, essentially that's the core of that job is yep. you sing Sunday services. But there's also these opportunities to record oratorios and to be in the chorus of an opera prototype. You know, uh, so these are really top level musicians, um, and. I just wanted to try to tie into the sports thing because that's what we do here. Sure. Um, you are a consort singer. And um, what sport is most like consort singing? Um, I would definitely say it's something like a team sport. Um, and it's a team sport where everybody maybe has a slightly different role. Um, so, I mean, even basketball, you could say. Um, which So, <laughs> uh, in high school, my high school is actually a, kind of a basketball powerhouse. Um, you graduated uh, from high school, though, right? I <laughs> I did. Um, DeMatha Catholic High School in, in Hyattsville, Maryland. We've had several NBA players come out of there. And so the... Can you name any one of them? That uh, we... I mean, I'm such not a sports guy, <laughs> okay. but Adrian People... Dantley is okay. probably like the most famous. Okay, cool. But then also, um, is it Jarrett Jackson? Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I think he played for Oklahoma Thunder and now maybe he plays somewhere else. Um, he was there the same time as me. Anyway. That'll give some of our listeners a boner. So, <laughs> um, and I might have gotten his name wrong. Sorry. Um, at any rate, the culture of team sports was actually really strong in my high school. You know, almost everybody played some sport. Now, I was terrible at sports, um, but fortunately, the music department also had that culture in my high school. So, I was in the band and in the choir, and in my in my choir, our choir teacher encouraged us, in fact, to call him coach. And he insisted that we all have a team nickname. My nickname was just Woody because my last name. Um, and it did really sort of engender this sense that like your job as a member of a team is both to do what you're supposed to do well, but also to look out for your teammates. And, you know, you can't just push everyone aside to stand in front. You know, the whole team sinks or swims based on if everybody is on the same page. Um, so maybe it's a swim team <laughs> or something like that or, or, or a track and field, you know, where everyone does like a slightly different thing. Like you've got your shot put and you've got your archery and you've got your, you know, 500 meter dash. And, you know, there's going to be someone who's the best at each one of those things. But the team doesn't do well unless everybody is hitting at all cylinders. Um, and I, I do feel like ensemble singing and concert singing in particular, concert singing being, you know, when you sing, basically you're the only one on your part. Um, and you have to be able to 
uh, fluctuate between the choral sound and then when it's your line to mm-hmm. add tone color back in and mm-hmm. phrasing more deliberate, et cetera. And, you know, you mentioned um, rhetoric a little bit ago, and I think that's one of the places where it really comes in handy to have that. Um, and I just wanted to say that, you know, rhetoric is something that I think I first experienced or encountered growing up in black church, um, watching the preacher build the pace of the sermon, you know, which in my denomination was AME, um, but I know this is true for a lot of black churches. The sermon starts off spoken, mm-hmm. and at a certain point, and you don't even perceive it, yeah. it becomes sung. And the organist catches it. Yeah. And some at a certain point, the organist starts to punctuate what the preacher says or is now singing with organ chords and it's super cool and and the congregation is involved and the the congregation hoots and hollers and they stand up and they clap and sometimes they sing and sometimes they faint you know (laughs) it's i mean it's it's really quite a quite an example of the power of rhetoric in a room you know the preacher holds everybody in the room in the palm of their hand and i grew up just experiencing that every Sunday and not thinking too much about it because it was just what was going on around me. But at a certain point, you realize, oh, yeah, that's rhetoric. And when I was in graduate school and I was learning about the sort of formal history of rhetoric, I was like, oh, I know what that is. Oh, yeah, yeah that's just that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so so I think uh, one of the things I really love about being in an ensemble is having the opportunity to do all those seamless transitions like you talked about, to, to step forward, take the stage, own the stage, and then step back and say, here, colleague, yeah. now you do it. Yeah. You know? The cheerful psaltery bring along and hop with pleasant string and hop with pleasant string, with pleasant string, the timbrel hither bring. The timbrel hither bring. The cheerful psaltery bring along The cheerful psaltery bring along And hop with pleasant, pleasant string And hop with pleasant string The timbrel hear the bring The timbrel hear the bring A little bit of Handel's Israel in Egypt To God our strength sing loud and clear We heard Jonathan Woody with Trinity Wall Street and he who shall not be named conducting. <laughs> There's so many of those now. That really doesn't narrow it down, I was going to say. <laughs> I, was like, I don't know you could be talking about anyone. My, my, my thanks to Jonathan Woody for taking the time during a very busy week for these artists. Um, and in the coming weeks, uh, we will have some more content from the festival, um, some free throws, and uh, another interview with Ooh. German soprano uh, Dorothee Mielz. This is why I love Boston. You know, you just send Oliver there just, you know, for a week and you come back with enough content for a month. That, that's what it's all about. You <laughs> a know, veritable treasure trove. I don't have to do a damn thing except to do the two minute drill, which is right now. This just in. 
the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. BBC's Cardiff Singer of the World has announced its 16 finalists advancing in this week's final competition, including five sopranos, three mezzo-sopranos, three tenors, a baritone and a bass baritone, and three basses. No Americans or countertenors made the cut this year, so we declined to name any finalists in protest. <laughs> Ryan Bancroft will conduct the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, and friend of the show Michael Christie will conduct the Welsh National Opera Orchestra in the coming rounds. And we will report on the results next week. Juilliard has fired composition professor Robert Beezer after an independent investigation found, quote, credible evidence supporting the allegations of sexual misconduct laid out in Band magazine last year. The investigation found that Beezer, quote, repeatedly misrepresented facts about his actions, that he had at least one unreported relationship, and that he, quote, engaged in conduct which interfered with individuals' academic work. Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, has resigned from the Board of English National Opera in an act of protest against funding cuts from Arts Council England. Said Sumption, Arts Council England forces a model which artistically and financially is no more than a delayed death sentence. He said, referring to the council's orders to move ENO out of London. Next year, Spoleto Festival USA will premiere Ruinous Gods, a chamber opera about refugee children by French-Lebanese composer Lael Chaker and librettist Lisa Schlesinger. I hope that this provides us with the means to interrogate our legacy, the state of the world as we are leaving it to our children, said Chaker. Ruinous Gods follows Spoleto's Pulitzer Prize-winning premiere of Omar at last year's festival. Mallorca's Teatro Principal de Palma has removed the stage director Hugo de Ana from its upcoming production of La Traviata after complaints of inappropriate comments by him towards members of the artistic team. Citing the company's psychosocial risk protocol, Teatro Principal terminated the director's contract, quote, to promote coexistence and a good working environment for the production. Traviata keeps its scheduled premiere date later this week. It's award season. Nominations for the Opus Classic Awards include multiple nods for male soprano Bruno de Sa and his album Roma Travestita, which includes a vocal solo album, world premiere recording, and singer of the year. And you heard about Bruno de Sa right here on OBS. Finnish soprano Sonia Hernan won first prize in the Elizabeth Connell Prize International Singing Competition. And Swedish soprano Nina Stemma was awarded San Francisco Opera Medal, the San Francisco Opera Medal, following the opening performance of the company's current production of Die Frau ohne Schatten. And speaking of Die Frau ohne Schatten, as everyone always is, Camilla <laughs> Newland, Nina Stemma, and Linda Watson took a break from their leading roles to sit down with the Associated Press, and it turns out they cannot explain the plot either. This means our dear friend of the show, Harry Rose, is the only person alive who can decode this symbolist fairy tale. Nina Stemma, time to check out our archives. I assume she's already a devoted listener. In trade news, Malmo Opera has appointed Christina Hörnel to be the company's new CEO and artistic director. Meanwhile, Jan Latham Koenig has been appointed artistic director of the festival Puccini. The conductor is the current music director of Teatro Colón and the founder and artistic director of the Britain Shostakovich Festival Orchestra. On the disabled list, Jamie Barton has announced on social media that she had to withdraw from some performances of Royal Opera House's production of Il Trovatore after testing positive for COVID. Said Barton, y'all, it's not Azucena level drama, but your girl's been going through it a bit herself. A chest cold that required five days of full vocal rest, gnarly food poisoning the night before opening, the worst seasonal allergies I've ever seen, and now a positive COVID test. Please consider this your friendly reminder that COVID is still a thing, and take care. 
And on this day, June 12th, there were a few birthdays, which include French-based Paul Plasson, born this day in 1854, and the Scottish composer and conductor Oliver Newson, born in 1952. A number of first performances include Francesco Cavalli's Iper Mestra in 1658, Antonio Salieri's Armida in 1771, Gaspare Spontini's Agnes von Hohenstaufen in 1829, two by Jacques Offenbach, La Rose de Saint-Fleur, the Saint-Flower, the Saint-Fleur, uh, in 1856, and Les Bavards in 1862. More French opera include Camille Saint-Saëns's La Princesse Jeanne, premiering in 1872, and then Hans Fittner's Palestrina, with Bruno Walter conducting in 1917. A Polish opera, the Polish opera, Karl Szymanowski's <laughs> King Roger, premiered in Warsaw in 1926. One for Weston, Prokofiev's War and Peace, premiering in Leningrad in 1946. Leonard Bernstein's Trouble in Tahiti premiered in 1952 with the composer conducting. Boleslav Martinu's The Greek Passion premiered in Zurich in 1961. In 1964, Benjamin Britten's Parable for Church Performance, Curlew River premiered in the Orpher Church of Alderborough. And a bizarre one, 1971, the first performance of an opera by Schubert. Yes, Franz Schubert, his unfinished opera, Sankuntala, in Vienna. And that is your two-minute drill. from at least one if not two hidden gems uh, of <laughs> opera that was Anita Cerquetti singing the aria from Gaspare Spontini's Agnes von Hohenstaufen she is just a singer who is not recorded nearly enough uh, but there is at least one studio set of a um, Gioconda how could I forget La, La Gioconda <laughs> <laughs> but the, an Italian dramatic soprano who retired really early, and so there's just not a lot of recordings of her, but it's like a pretty phenomenal voice. Uh, and y you can hear the that the, uh, that the Spontini aria like really highlights just the way that sh she can sing in these long, long lines that just continue to arch and go like up and up and up in, in a way that like more dramatic sopranos don't always necessarily f sound. Yeah, but I, I always feel like the voice has a lot of darkness and it feels very heavy. And like yes. when, when a voice that dark tries to do that much bel canto, I feel like, ooh, 
are you sure that's the type of music you want to be singing? So. <laughs> I like a little bit of darkness in my bel canto. Of course, I like I, I also like War and Peace by Sergei Prokofiev. So, you know, uh, I have expensive tastes. Uh, <laughs> this is just one of those weeks, folks, where there's not a lot to talk about. And hmm. I'm just like avoiding the one important story because I don't want to talk about Robert Beezer. But here we are. We have to talk about Robert Beezer. Who wants to talk about Robert Beezer? He's out. He's out. And Juilliard is yeah. quite tight-lipped about the details. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> yeah, a lot of these, uh, the the results of this investigation is very, you know, vague and, you know, um, and, you know, very kind of, you know, sidesteppy, avoiding. It, it, it feels like avoiding a lot of uh, um, responsibility. I mean, I do think that's probably the right call based on what we know about what happened um yeah that, that but... report we did cover back in December of 2022 when it when it dropped and it was pretty bad about it the was... kinds of things that that students of his uh, of both him and uh, an- another one of his colleagues in the composition department at Juilliard Christopher Rouse who is no longer alive yeah uh, yeah w- it it's it's pretty bad there's a lot of you know harassment inappropriate relationships uh, lots of stuff uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I think that the, the big the big thing to remember is that, you know, Juilliard did say they did an investigation back when some of these allegations first cropped up, you know, 10 years ago or so. Um, and uh, just kind of, you know, brushed it right under the rug a little bit is kind of the impression that people have gotten. Uh, and, uh, you know, so I'm glad that this one is is sticking um, to some degree. Of course, I should say uh, Beezer's lawyer is saying that, you know, they're going to fight this. This isn't, you know, true, but um, he wouldn't be worth his retainer if he didn't say that. But I <laughs> exactly. don't necessarily put a lot of stock in, in those kinds of after the fact statements. Exactly. And, uh, you know, that's it's just one of those things, you know, it's it's uh, it's. One of the, it's one of those situations where Juilliard is such a a, a big a backbone of the classical music world here in the U.S. and and beyond the U.S. and um, I I think it's good that he's been fired um, if these uh, if this investigation has been borne out properly and I think that um, you know hopefully we can move on making sure that that they center their responsibility as an institution for these sorts of things going forward. So, you know, I mean, it's a lot easier to fire somebody like that who is not like a marquee name, like for audiences, like maybe right, Juilliard, exactly. he's like a big name. But, you know, when you think about what the Met had to go through with James Levine, like they're talking about whatever, 30 years of legacy, 40 years of his legacy, uh, yeah. you know, and not just legacy, but like being the being the centerpiece of like yeah. a, a lot of their marketing and yeah, yeah. And merchandise in particular, the, yeah. with the recordings that they often would like really hype his name. Yeah. So um, we are going to report next week uh, about what happens at Cardiff. Uh, it is sort of bizarre that this year there are no Americans. Usually we can cheer for somebody. It's sort of like our <laughs> our Eurovision over there, you know, but we're completely uh, knocked out. We do have some representation on the conducting front, front of the show, Michael Christie. And it's fortunately not 100% Eurovision, since there are a couple contestants from South Korea and South Africa. Nice. Nice. Do you, by any chance, do you have any names you want to throw out so we can at least acknowledge them before they make yeah, there, it? Yeah, there's uh, two tenors from South Korea, tenor Byung Jin Angelo Kim, as well as uh, 
Song Ho Kim. And from South Africa, there there's a mezzo-soprano, Sipokazi Molteno, uh, hmm. and soprano, uh, Nambulelo Yende. Hmm. Well, we're hoping one of them wins because, uh, in in revenge <laughs> Just, again for the countertenors and Americans out there. Yeah. So we we want a we want a brown to win or like a, a non-white person to win. That's what we're saying. <laughs> Unless yeah. it's the tenor from Ukraine, Vasil Sodiki, they okay. can you, he, yeah, they oh, can yeah. have he's, that he's victory. Okay. I mean, any victory <laughs> okay. for Ukraine right now is also fun. <laughs> but other than that, no Europeans. That's what we're calling. We're calling our shot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. Who needs Europe? Who needs it? <laughs> Europe, you had your chance already. I was speaking of Europe and like institutions that are archaic and silly. I want to talk a little bit about Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption. Uh, You got to get the comma in there. A name that that I did read as Lord Sumpington for the first (laughs) three times through that article, which is somehow even more ridiculous. It's so funny. Like, like uh, I just love the the straight facedness with the headlines like this. Like, Lord Sumption has has resigned from the board. You know, (laughs) now I will say I I agree with him that, you know, I think the um, I think Arts Council England, of course, is doing uh, a pretty atrocious job of cutting funding. Well, a good job at cutting funding, Uh, a pretty atrocious job of like, you know, forcing these funding cuts and making ENO move. And I do think it's going to hurt ENO in the long run. Um, uh, and they're, they're just also... one of a long list of organizations that are really hurting and threatening, or not even threatening, but warning that they might yeah. need to reduce or cease operations uh, because they were expecting grants from from the government that are not materializing. Yeah, it, di- it didn't make the cut for two minute drill, but a uh, Leeds leader festival um, lost. Uh, it was something like sixty thousand pounds, which is a, a uh, or six hundred thousand, either sixty or six hundred thousand. It was either six, way, sixty thousand pounds. Either way, a huge amount for them, <laughs> um, and you know they're they're all panicking about it over there. And I I do think that Sumption has it right when he says that you know um, uh, ACE is is a disaster and like you know kind of just cutting and gutting as it goes. I do question his act of protest for I I mean yeah he why, is a, why, he what is a lord so he doesn't understand like normal people protests so this is basically just an open letter <laughs> he's basically doing an open letter and being like oh, i'm not gonna deal with it goodbye i'm gonna leave the, the end now and hope they can work it out um because when i first read it i thought he was like oh he, uh, lord sumption has resigned from arts council england that would make sense but no he was on the board of eno and he's just kind of like abandoning ship which i think is you know um very uh, Lord Sumption of him. Uh, yeah, this is obviously this is uh, a developing story that we've been following for, you know, months and months now. Uh, it doesn't seem to be getting a heck of a lot better. You know, uh, I think there's been I think some pushback has resulted in like some small incremental gains. But as the new seasons start to pop up and this funding stops materializing uh, for these organizations, uh, Arts Council England is continuing to just, you know, do a pretty good job of um, being terrible. Let's wrap the show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, a bad call. That's how we end each and every show here on Opera Box Score, even when George isn't here. Uh, let's start with... It's our with... good call. <laughs> George isn't here. Good call. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Oliver Camacho, are you going to stick with that? or, or is, uh, Yeah, that's uh, fine. Let's, let's, okay, let's cool. keep yeah. some things intact. Um, 
So I spent uh, six days in Boston and I saw most of Boston Early Music Festival. I missed uh, the opening Sunday and the closing Sunday, but I think I saw just about every operatic performance that I could, mm. uh, including sitting down for Demai's Circe twice. I loved it that much. I'm a French broke opera guy, as you know. What? Um, I have to say that you know, if you are in this company, they are really like a rep, like a, a troupe. Uh, they make you work hard. Uh, for example, Amanda Forsyth, friend of the show, uh, has one of the lead roles in Circe. She also sang in a concert on Monday night. Um, arias from uh, Almira, which was their production in 2013. And then she had a Saturday night concert, one of the last concerts I saw, which was um, a trio concert with Cecilia Duarte and Dorote Mields and the continuo section of the Boston Early Music Festival Opera Orchestra. So um, basically, she had something to do every single night of the of the of the week, maybe with one night off. And uh, yeah, that, Hannah DePriest, uh, a local soprano here in Chicago, um, was called to the festival to understudy Karina Gauvin because the originally announced um, uh, Circe title character, uh, Lucille Richardot, had a family emergency. And so Karina Gauvin had to come in and learn this role um, and couldn't make it for the first week of rehearsal. So Hannah DePriest had to learn it in addition to the role she was already cast in, which was Amor or Cupid in the opera. Plus, uh, she was in various concerts, including a non-BEMF concert that week, um, Les Delices, a Cleveland-based uh, period instrument band. So she's another artist who had like something to do basically every day. And I felt like, how could you juggle all these things? How can you keep all this stuff in your head? Um, Dorote Mields uh, gave two concerts. Uh, she wasn't in the opera, but she was exquisite both times and i think we will be getting a free throw from dorothy meals um coming soon i have to say that like you know i just i love this place so much i think that um the pandemic did a number on it and i was sorry to not see full houses for some of these events which were just some of the most thrilling performances i've seen ever i think what happened is they went to this online model and they taught their audiences that they could enjoy these things from home because they continue to offer uh, online viewing. And I also think that because they're a biennial festival, it's one of those things like you miss it, you know, one year. Suddenly it's four years since you've had your audience, you know, in Boston. And it's one of those like, you know, you, you know, forgotten or you've not seen, forgotten, whatever the adage is for something like that, you know. So uh, I hope that they can come back Um in 2025 with a, a more robust attendance um it really was heartbreaking to see some half full audiences from some of those concerts and i can scoop i, I can scoop right now something that is exclusive for our our audience members the 2025 festival opera will be reinhard kaiser's octavia so all Ooh. you all you Octavia fans, finally this is your moment. <laughs> the Marshallin will be first in line. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> if you are uh, a potential young artist, uh, start learning your Octavia now. Go to the uh, what do they call the M twos? I forget what libraries are. Is it M twos, uh, Matt? You're closest to academia. 
where you will find uh, full editions of things like uh, in in a good music library that are not performing editions. Are you going to have to read through like all the long S's and figure out what? <laughs> <laughs> I was talking about like in a music library, they have like the the complete works of Handel, the complete works of Purcell, you know, and like that's if you browse through there, you'll eventually find like these you know, Telemann or Kaiser operas that there's no performing editions, but there is like the full score. So like Sakuntala. Exactly. So anyway, <laughs> go, go look up your Octavias and work on your, on your German for Take the it to your festival. Yes. And all you uh, uh, audience members out there, remember streaming on the internet is not historically informed performance. Matt Cummings. I've got a bit of a bad call and <sighs> it is too, um, a write up that Zachary Wolf did in the times about the end of the Mets season. Uh, and it it reads uh, he, he it's called the end of an era. It's the end of an era at the Metropolitan Opera, and what like I hope that the conclusion of his piece is not right, which is which he is you know noticing that the Met next year had to rate its endowment is scaling back the number of operas that they're doing from twenty two to eighteen, and that they are um, that there's a total cut to the number of performances as well. Um, that that is ten ten percent fewer performances with um, about a twenty ish percent cut in the in the number of shows that they're doing. Which, if you do the math, means that they're doing more performances of each show. But it's being mm. presented as like an unambiguously bad thing, and I'm just not sure that um, some of the evidence that he draws from in this piece like really can bear that weight. Uh, saying <laughs> that one of the you know, he calls out that that they're retiring this production of Aida by Sonia Frizzell from the 1980s. And <laughs> I don't want to put words in his mouth and say that he's actually calling that this a bad thing, because that isn't what it says. Um, but to bemoan the end of an era that, that involved a production of Aida that originally was done in blackface and continued to be done in blackface until mm. very recently. <laughs> not necessarily a bad thing. Um <laughs> And he also, you know, kind of speculates that they that if if this kind of scaling back of doing revivals of old repertory productions, like if this were to continue, then you might not get highlights of the season like Lady Macbeth of Nsensk. And while that is true, that I mean, while it's true that that would be a bad thing, like that was a very highly publicized production. So it it just it just reads to me like some of these. Um, some of the evidence of this being the end of an era and like a uh, or any kind of you know um turning point it like the evidence is just very cherry picked it's got and some some boomer energy to it, to it in a way that I really don't associate <laughs> but he's a millennial with, I think I know exactly like, yeah it, it was it was a weird vibe off of that article yeah and you know, part of that is because it's hard to review an entire season of a repertory company in 500 words or however long he had Fair. to write this piece. And I really do hope that um, some of the negative trends in next, the, some of the negative uh, data points in next season do not continue to be trends. Like it would be bad if they had to keep rating their endowment. It would be bad if the number of operas that they perform every year keeps creeping lower and lower and lower. But the fact that they're that one third of the of the um, of the productions that they're staging next year are new works, not not premieres, but like new operas, and that they are expanding the repertory of this house. Uh, like it's presenting that as a bad thing, and I just don't know that I buy that as an interpretation of what is going on here. Well, 
That's what happens when you have a slow news week. We get articles <laughs> like that. <laughs> exactly. Literally. And uh, it, it's funny that you happen to use that as your bad uh, uh, your bad call there because uh, my good call is actually associated with the Met's upcoming programming. Uh, uh, there was uh, It was announced that the Met is actually going to present Kaya Sariho's Innocence in the 25-26 season. And uh, if you uh, all you listeners go back and listen to the tribute we put together for uh, uh, Sariho last week, you'll know why that's such an exciting thing for me. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes at operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about on our website at operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is me. For co-host Matt Cummings and our guest Jonathan Woody, I'm Weston Williams asking you to continue the conversation about opera's very hidden gems on this slow, slow news week. We're back with an all-new show next week when we reveal who wins the Dame Curie to Conwell Audience Prize at Cardiff. Plus, you get more opera headlines, if there are any, more hot takes, and more psychosocial risk protocols. Join us.